This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBiz X. Today's guest is based in Beverly Hills, California, but travels anywhere in the world to shoot weddings and teach. In fact, as we record this interview, he's driving to Arizona to deliver a workshop, and I'll be seeing him in Melbourne, Australia in a couple of weeks' time at a workshop with Yvant and Annie. This guy's resume is incredible. He's sponsored by Canon USA. He is a top-selling author in Amazon for photography books. Before photography, he had a 10-year career as a classical guitarist. He has a degree in economics, marketing, and international business, and he was a high school economics and finance teacher. He's been named one of the top 10 most influential photographers and educators in the world. I'm talking about Roberto Valenzuela, and I'm wrapped to have him with me now. Roberto, welcome, mate. Andrew, how's it going, Andrew? How are you? Thanks so much for inviting me, man. <laughs> <laughs> mate, it's my pleasure. Are you driving as you do this interview? I am driving, you know. you got to multitask. <laughs> you got to multitask. I am driving 70 miles per hour and talking to you at the same time. This is working very well for safety and, and highway loss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is an absolute first, and I just want to remind you to keep both hands on the wheels, and I hope you don't talk like me with your hands uh, while you get into this interview. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep my hands on the wheel, Andrew. I promise. I'm going to try. <laughs> if I get excited or I try to use my hand gestures, I'll try to uh, maybe just move my head or something. Fantastic. Fantastic. And are you, are you driving alone in the car? No, my wife with me. She's going to be helping me out a little bit. We're going to be celebrating Mother's Day in Arizona, where our families live, and we're teaching the lighting workshop, uh, my first lighting workshop in Tucson, Arizona. It's kind of like the first one, so it's pretty exciting to see how it goes. Fantastic. Does Kim play a big role in your business, or does she take a back seat and you're the front man? No, Kim doesn't want anything to do with my business. She's got, <laughs> she's got, she only likes my business when she needs a Facebook profile picture. <laughs> Other than that, she stays away from photography altogether. But she does rarely, but sometimes she does help me at weddings. She always says that if it's an exotic location, then she'll be my assistant. But if it's not an exotic location, then she'll stay home and I can, I can take someone else. So, <laughs> and of course, when she does come, I have to pay her by buying her a pair of shoes. So, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So that's that's kind of the setup we have. But she's a material science engineer, systems engineer at a uh, engineering firm here in the United States. So she's got her own job. Okay, fantastic, mate. You got to tell me, like, with the resume like yours, you know, you're a high school teacher, you're a classical guitarist. Why even go down the road of wedding photographer? Because it's awesome. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's like it's like a nightmare the entire time, and it's like problem solving. It's like the most exciting type of photography you can do. There's nothing predictable about a wedding, and your skills have to be so honed in for you to be able to do an amazing job with all the variables and all the obstacles and all the psychology that gets thrown your way. And it's just like an obstacle course to me. And I, I just find wedding photography extremely satisfying and fascinating at the same time. See, I can totally relate to what you're saying and I understand what you're saying, looking at where you are right now. But when you were you know, teaching in high school, you've got this degree, you're a classical guitarist. You know, what even enters your head or how does it enter your head to think, yeah, I might take up photography? <laughs> I was a 10-year classical and flamenco guitar teacher and I used to be a professional classical guitarist as well, like a performer. 
but I basically did that. I mean, the whole guitar world, I basically learned to play the guitar and I taught guitar so I could go to college and pay for college because, you know, college was just really expensive and teaching guitar lessons would pay you six or eight times more than like a regular job. Like if I worked at McDonald's, I would have never been able to pay for college. So I taught myself guitar so then I could teach guitar lessons and then charge for guitar lessons at a much higher rate. And because of that, I was able to learn guitar fast enough and I landed a job as a full-time guitar teacher at a music store in Tucson, Arizona. And that's what made me go to college and pay for college. But once I graduated from college, I ended up working for corporate America for like a year, but then I moved on to teaching at the high school that I used to be a teacher at. And during that year, during my time as a high school teacher, since I was a business teacher, the president of the United States at that time, it was George Bush Jr., not senior, the junior. And he decided to start a program for business teachers, high school business teachers. And it basically gave us a $90,000 grant for any students that were taking business classes in high school to actually begin a real business. And the idea was to get more people interested in attending business school when they were choosing their careers or what they wanted to do in college. So because I was a high school teacher, I was a beneficiary of that $90,000 grant. And I asked my students, okay, we have this money. What do you want to do with it? And we can do any business you guys want. And they would have to have a marketing department, a finance department, an accounting department, a PR department. They were going to do everything. And the students thought it would be fun to do digital photography. So they're the ones that basically ended up pushing me into photography. If it wasn't for them, I would have never been here. If they would have chosen, I don't know, uh, something else, I would have never been here. I would have not been here at all. <laughs> so, wow. So this class, with this money that you have or this grant, you're meant to create a business with your class, with your students. A real business, like a real money-making business that had to make money and it had to succeed. And students had to do a P&L statement or a profit and loss statement. They had to keep track of the books. They had to understand taxes. They had to understand marketing, how to market to people. They had to understand consumer behavior. I mean, you're talking a real business here. And it had to become a real money-making machine. So who was going to be the front man? Who was going to be the photographer? There were several photographers. The business had like a CEO and it had a CFO, and they didn't get paid, but they got paid in paper, like a joke, you know? But the money that came in was real money, but it was uh, obviously run like a nonprofit. So we would use that money to take my students to DECA competitions all over the country. DECA is like a United States program for business competitions in high school, for high school students. So I would take my students to New York City or Florida or Texas or whatever, Phoenix, and we would compete against other high school business students. Turns out my students were the top three in the nation for business. Fantastic. Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) So at this stage here, you weren't a photographer or did you know anything about photography? Andrew, I didn't even know how to spell the word photography. (laughs) Like, I had to look it up. (laughs) This is amazing. Also, oh, it's true though. I really did have to look it up. I really didn't know how to spell the word photography because I was not into photography whatsoever. I didn't own a camera and I didn't even know that you could take the lenses out of the camera body. I thought the cameras were always attached. 
and the lens and the camera bodies were always attached. But turns out I learned about these cameras called SLRs, and I had no idea why they called it that. And I was there like single lens reflex. I was like, wow, that sounds like a like a body joint for anatomy class or something. <laughs> you know, I had no idea that you could take the lenses out and put other lenses in. You're talking to a person that had zero idea about what photography was when my students decided to run a photography business. So is that when you thought to yourself, okay, I've got to learn photography, or were you purely focused on the business with the students? I had to learn photography because I had to basically help out in every aspect of the business so the class could succeed. Because remember, we were competing against other high schools in other parts of the United States. So we would stay after school. So school ended at 2.45 or 2.50 p.m. And then around, students would stay with me till about 6 or 7 p.m., even after dinner, playing with the photography gear. We bought strobes, reflectors, backgrounds, background papers, canvas. We bought, like, SLRs, lenses, flashes with $90,000. We purchased computers, Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, everything. And we had no idea how to use any of this stuff. I mean, in photography alone was complicated. And then when you add reflectors and diffusers, and they all come in different sizes. And I mean, putting the reflector that was collapsible back in the bag, it was like an hour long <laughs> process because like we couldn't figure this out, you know? And then taking pictures, you know, and that was back when talking about RAW and JPEG was like a popular conversation for photographers. And, you know, we were all discussing that and, we would play with the gear till seven o'clock at night. And then the, the students' parents would pick the kids up. And then the next day they would stay with me till seven o'clock. I would have to stay sometimes later because I had to get a head start and be able to understand how all this works. It was fascinating to me and it was very difficult. It was a very difficult time. The learning curve was very steep. Sure. Put aside the technical aspects of learning how to use the camera and the lights and pack a reflector away and talk to me about the actual photography style. How did you instill a style or a, a way that these students and yourself would start to shoot? Who did you look to for inspiration? Where did you learn that stuff? Well, that didn't come for a, a lot later. I started getting interested in photography to the point where I started feeling quite a bit of passion for it, but I didn't have a style. I didn't have anything. I had nothing. I just thought this is really fun and I'm really enjoying this and I want to learn more. And it was because I was in the middle of getting married during that time, I was actually choosing a wedding photographer. And I went through that process of, you know, meeting with photographers, choosing photographers, looking at their work, looking, and I started talking to everyone about cameras and stuff because I was trying to find information for the school. And I think that whole process of finding a wedding photographer, getting married to my wife, Kim, and then seeing my photographer work at my wedding, and then all that experience was just, I was just like overwhelmed with how much I wanted to try it. And I think that I did something really stupid where my sister-in-law, Amy, she told me that one of her friends was getting married. Her friend lived in Pennsylvania or something. But she was getting married in Tucson, Arizona. And I said, I don't know why I said this, but I said, would you please, would you please just tell her that I'm a total newbie, but I would love to, if she would take a chance on me and let me be her wedding photographer. And I didn't even own a camera, Andrew. I only used the camera from the school. Like, I had nothing. And then it was a very, you know, one of those risky moves. And my sister-in-law was like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, I'm serious. Let's do it. 
turns out I thought she would say no, but she said yes. How scared were you? I was very scared. <laughs> I was like, what? She said yes, and then she came to Tucson to organize her wedding, and one of the pit stops was to meet with me, and I was very nervous about that. And she's like, how many weddings have you done? I was like, zero. Oh, do you know how to do this? Have you studied? And I said, oh, I'm studying. I'm studying. <laughs> you know, but I said, listen, it's definitely a risk. I think I showed her some photos that I took at the school, you know, some portraits and stuff. She goes, oh, that's pretty good. I said, yeah, so, you know, I, I can take a picture. I don't know if I can do a wedding, but, you know, maybe we can try. <laughs> it was a bad situation. That wedding was scheduled for a Saturday, you know, maybe a month or so after that meeting. And then I found out that Tucson was having a bridal fair and that bridal fair was going to happen on Sunday, the Sunday after, like the very next day after the first wedding I was going to shoot. And like an idiot, I called a business line for that bridal fair and I actually paid for a booth with money that I didn't even have because it was like $500 to get a booth. And they said, what's your business name? And I was like, I don't know. I guess Roberto photography. <laughs> I don't know what my business name is. And so I used my school's paycheck to pay for the booth. And of course, what am I going to display at the booth? I have nothing. I was going to have an empty booth in the middle of a bridal fair with everybody being a professional photographer for 10 years. So I shot this wedding on Saturday. And I wouldn't say it was a disaster at that point. But it's a disaster looking back at the pictures today. The pictures were, I would say, 70% were out of focus. A good percentage were overexposed. The other percentage was underexposed. The composition was like non-existent. Like if there was a toilet, I would put the toilet in the picture. Like it was just like the worst decision making you can imagine. And then the stress of the wedding Everybody tapping my shoulder, asking me about things or when are we going to do that? When are these pictures happening? I was just like, what is wrong with all you people? Why can't you all leave me alone? And then I realized that's just the nature of the job. It was horrendous. I mean, the pictures are terrible. Did you use those photos at the bridal fair? I sure did, Andrew. I sure did. <laughs> so what I did is I took photos of the bride from different angles, you know, from the back, from the side, from the front. I uh, took pictures of her bridal party. So I basically chose photos that looked like different weddings, you know, like it was showing the bride from different angles. So you couldn't really tell it was the same person. And then I went to the store in Tucson. They closed at 11 o'clock. So I went and I bought pre-matted frames with an eight by 10 opening. And I went home, I pulled on my memory card out of the wedding, even though I was exhausted. And I started printing photos with my $99 printer, inkjet little printer I had. And I put those photos on the pre-matted frames that I just purchased, and I was ready to go for the bridal fair. <laughs> I was ready to go. Unbelievable. Just quickly, did you book any weddings? I booked 10 weddings. You're joking. No. 10 weddings? Yeah. On what basis? Price or quality? Well, that's the trick, right? Remember, I have a degree in marketing, and my degree is in consumer behavior. So consumer behavior is the psychology of why people buy what they buy. So I used my marketing knowledge to my advantage during the bridal fair. So what I did is I actually, I priced myself pretty high so people wouldn't question my experience and it worked. Wow. So even that your display would never have looked as good as some of the other photographers there? Not even close, but it didn't matter because if you are distracting people with your personality and your charm, 
people are too distracted to look at the pictures. I mean, the pictures are there. Don't forget, a bridal fair is overwhelming for people. It's like massive visual stimuli. So at some point, after 15 minutes, you stop looking at pictures, no matter how good your booth is, it just all blends in into one big bunch of distractions. So what's left? It's the photographer's personality. So that's when I knew that that was going to happen because of my degree in marketing. I mean, that's why billboards are such a difficult psychological task, because how do you get people's attention when people are looking at 5,000 photos a day? So you use that knowledge to your advantage. And then I price myself so high that my experience never came into question. And, you know, because I was brand new, my passion and the way I was talking about photography really came out. And people really responded to how passionate I was about photography. And they wanted to hire somebody who felt that way more so than somebody who was technically good, which is really interesting. You have big kahunas to pull off something like that. That is... That's a gutsy move. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that crazy, though? It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. There's a massive lesson just in that, you know, that that psychology side of things. Absolutely. I had no idea how useful that marketing knowledge was going to be. I mean, I had no idea that I knew that people responded to passion from a psychological point of view more than technical ability in general. So if somebody talks about their car with a lot of passion, you don't care about what car it is. You want to go buy that car because that person, your friend or whatever, is so passionate about it and just makes you look at that, at that product in a very different way. So with me, I was just so into it that people were just, it was like addictive, you know? It was like almost contagious for them. Yeah, I remember how excited I was about photography when I first started. And yeah, I would be feeding off that if people were asking me, I'd be happy to, to talk all day about photography. That's right. That's right. And I think we lose that once we become more and more experienced. You start to pivot in the sense that you start to try to you begin selling yourself based on your technical ability or artistic ability and price or whatever it is. And, you know, we forget that it's a combination of different elements that comes together. And one of the most powerful ones is how passionate and how excited you are about doing the job for them. They want to have a photographer there that's excited to be there. They don't want to have someone that's just like who thinks he's the greatest in the world and he's going to be a snob. Nobody wants that. No matter how good you are, people don't respond to Mm -hmm. that. For sure. So at this stage, I mean, in the back of your mind, were you thinking, okay, I'm going to quit teaching? This is going to be a career or is this going to supplement my income so I can have more holidays? What were you thinking at this stage? Well, I think what happened was, After my wedding, I went to the Wedding and Portrait Photographers International Convention, or WPPI in Las Vegas. And when I was there, to me, that was like the tipping point, where I was so much into photography. I was thinking about photography all day. Then I went to the WPPI convention, and I got to meet all these photographers that were like world-class wedding photographers from all over the world. And I got to see their photography, and I got to see what world-class wedding photography looked like. And I got to tell you, Andrew, like the energy that I got out of that, like the fire in me was just so big. I just, I just had to run back to Tucson and I wanted to just quit teaching. I mean, I was just so excited. I was just like, I got to quit. But I was the only income earner in my family at that time. I had just gotten married and now I'm going to quit the only job we have that makes us any money. It was a disaster. Like just thinking about it was very scary, but my wife was getting her master's degree and she did get a job 
in, you know, that summer. So I thought, you know, if this fails, at least my wife will have an income and I can probably like, you know, start over or something like that. But for a while, before she got her first paycheck, I did quit my job. I did make the decision that I was going to pursue photography full time, even though I adored being a high school teacher. It was the best thing in my life. And I still miss it very much, actually. But it was very difficult. But if you don't, you only live once, right? YOLO. So you have to take a chance. I mean, do I continue teaching for $26,000 a year and just do this the rest of my life? Or do I take a chance and do something that I feel extremely passionate about? And I hope that it's not just like a fluke. Like, I hope that it's for real. And I felt it was for real. I, I just took the chance. So I called the principal of the school and I told her about my announcement that I was not going to be returning as a teacher next year. And she was shocked. And then when she asked me why, and I said, I'm going to try to become a professional photographer. <laughs> her expression in her face was priceless. I will never forget her expression in her face. Her jaw literally dropped. And she's like, wow. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. She must be surprised and amazed now. I mean, because you, know, you have wedding packages that go up to $25,000, dollars $26,000, you know, what you're making in a year. That's right. That's right. And it's funny, it's just like, you know, one wedding now, one of those weddings is definitely as much as I made in an entire academic year. It's insane. And it's just insane. But I remember the, the principal of the school said to me, didn't you just get married? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, wow, that is something else. <laughs> she thought you were crazy? I think it was beyond crazy. I just thought, maybe she thought I lost it completely. Like, I don't know what she thought, you know, because getting a full-time job as a high school teacher where you have your own classroom and you have a full-time position, you know, that's a very difficult thing to have. It's like, if you have that, you hold on to it for the rest of your life. For sure. You know? Yeah. Same in Australia. You know, it's not a job that you would easily give up, certainly without a lot of thought and consideration to how things could turn out. Yeah. But, you know, I was young. I mean, I was 26. And, you know, I also told myself, if this is a major mistake, at least I'm young and I can afford two or three of these mistakes before it's too late. Right? For sure. For sure. I mean, and my wife was getting a job at an engineering firm. So it's not like, it's not like we had nothing. I mean, she was going to be employed and I could probably get a job as a teacher again, but maybe not full time. It would probably be very difficult to go back to what I had, but that's the risk I was willing to take. And obviously I don't regret my decision, even though I miss teaching tremendously and I miss my students and I still stay in touch with many of them, even though it's been more than 10 years. This career of photography has been the most fascinating ride I have ever experienced in my life, traveling the world. Just last year alone, I traveled the world five times, you know? It's amazing. I mean, I'm going to see you in Australia in a couple of weeks. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person and attending a workshop. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited about that. And it's such a blessing to me. And I'm not trying to be cheesy or corny, but I mean, just imagine what you just said. I'll see you in Australia. I mean, what? If somebody told me when I was a high school teacher, I was going to go to Australia because I was going to teach something, I mean, I would be laughing. Like, that's never going to happen. Like, why would anybody send me to Australia, right? I mean, it's just fascinating how photography has allowed me to travel to Europe eight times a year, Australia, you know, Argentina, Peru, Mexico City, Brazil, Canada, I mean, Iceland. It's like, wow, 
this is the greatest job in the world. I have never lost my passion for it. I'm in love with this industry, and I want this industry to succeed. And I know it's in a little bit of danger right now with a lot of the uh, smartphones and stuff, but that's why we work so hard, not just me, but many of the educators in the world are trying to work so hard to inspire people to work hard on their education. They got to invest in their education, not just not just in here. Because we got to make this industry thrive. Look, I want to ask you about that because I think that's a contentious issue because a lot of photographers out there are saying workshops are a waste of time. You, know, you should be out there learning from the old masters. You shouldn't be following what every other photographer is doing. You shouldn't be following trends. You know, you need to learn yourself and find your own way. Stop going to workshops. So what are your thoughts on that? Workshops are probably, in my opinion, and I've been teaching forever from guitar to high school economics, marketing, finance, and accounting to photography. And I think anyone that thinks workshops are a waste of time, maybe they didn't do the research and they didn't go to the right instructor for them. There are certain teachers out there that are truly, truly trying to share their knowledge with students and really trying to pass on that information. And I think it really speeds up your learning curve. By no means you can substitute having you know, an experienced educator who has been in the field for a while, who has learned many things in the way. You cannot substitute that kind of knowledge by looking at a YouTube video. You know, it's like learning how to drive by watching television. Like at some point, you got to get behind the wheel. And at some point, you want someone that's driven for many years to tell you, here's some things to look out for. Here's some things that you could potentially be dangerous. And then you'll learn a lot faster that way. Um, whether I teach workshops or not, I will never change my opinion that if photographers began investing in really good education with really qualified educators, and I'm not talking about who's trendy or who's popular at that time in the month or whatever. I'm talking about educators who have a real reputation for giving quality workshops. I think that everyone should be doing more of that, especially now more than ever. And if you go to a workshop with a really good teacher, they're going to push you. They're not going to show you how to shoot in their style. That's open to you. They're going to teach you and give you tools and give you give you a path so you can take that path and keep learning yourself and not make as many mistakes in the process. And if you do make mistakes, you'll learn from those mistakes much faster and you can turn them into an asset much faster than if you didn't have this workshop education. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, what you just said then, I mean, I think that's the crux of what I'm hearing from people that are you know, discounting the effect or the positive side of going to a workshop. You said that, you know, let's take your workshop in Melbourne, for example. So you're going to be teaching posing and how to pose people at a wedding. Is that right? Yes, right. It's not just weddings. It's posing overall. Okay, so let's say I come and I sit in that posing workshop with you, which I'm excited to do, and... I guess the downside that I'm hearing from other photographers is, well, Andrew, if you go and listen to Roberto and you, you copy what he teaches, then you've lost your own style. You've lost your own vision because you're copying what he's teaching. You're just a, a lesser version of Roberto. Right. There's two things I can say about that. The first one is it's okay to copy me and it's okay for people to copy other photographers if they're trying to spread their wings. Everyone does it anyway. So why try to hide the fact that photographers get inspired by other people and when they're learning and they're in the first stages of their photography business or career, it's inevitable that you're going to copy other photographers that you look up to. Am I right? Yeah, I agree. And then as you start copying, you're going to start realizing that some things are not your style, some things you respond to better than others. And little by little, by that process of copying and liking and not liking, 
the results, you develop your own style. That's kind of the path that you're going to take. I copied photographers when I was learning photography. I didn't invent the poses that I, I was doing on my first weddings. I was totally copying famous photographers. I would go to their website and freaking take a picture or whatever I did, and I would replicate it. And I have no shame saying that. I'm not ashamed to say that because it's inevitable that you are going to copy somebody. And little by little, I started developing my own style. Like, what do I like? What do I respond to? What tickles my fancy, if you will? You know, like, what's what I respond to better? And I stopped copying photographers. But copying was part of the learning process for me, and I think it's a healthy way to go. The second point, for example, this is just an example that I can bring for my posing classes. My posing classes do not teach people how to pose like me. My posing classes teach the psychology of what poses look like from the viewer's point of view. So if you, if you look at a photo and a person has a lot of the pose has a lot of, say, 90-degree angles in the pose, like in her joints, like in her arms or her legs are posed in a 90-degree kind of way, the pose is going to look rather robotic. It is not my opinion. It just will look robotic. But if you extend her legs or her elbows more and you elongate the legs and you elongate, you open up the angle to something bigger than a 90-degree angle, the pose will automatically begin to take in a more elegant look. And again, that is not my opinion. That is just what it will be. It is the way you respond to those angles. And if somebody brings their chin down and then looks up at a fixed point, that person is going to look rather aggressive. But if you bring the, the model's chin up and her eyelids close a little bit, the pose will be completely different. It will now look soft and glamorous and romantic. And again, I'm teaching these things to people so they never have to memorize poses and regurgitate poses when they're posing fashion, high school seniors, portraits, boudoir, or weddings. It doesn't matter. I tell people, do you want to make people look soft? Do you want to make people look romantic? Do you want to make them look aggressive? What is the desired look that you want to achieve? And that question itself, it's already a learning process because most photographers, when they post, don't even have a clue what they're trying to do before they do it. They just start guessing. Like, can you put your arm here? Can you maybe put your arm there? Can you put your leg here? Can you maybe move your head there? They have no, it's, it's a freaking clueless process. <laughs> I can hear how passionate you are. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun because I have seen my students basically transform from memorizing and regurgitating to building poses from scratch. And that to me is priceless, you know? For sure. I've been going to workshops my whole life as a photographer. And even if I don't learn a lot, I still come away usually excited and enthusiastic or re-enthused about photography. And just even talking and being around other photographers is exciting in itself. Look, the more skilled you are at something, the more difficult it is for you to progress or to have a little, another notch of knowledge, right, that you didn't have before. The more you know, the more difficult that becomes. But that's also the whole point. But by going to workshops, you might learn a nugget or two nuggets of information that you didn't know before that make you that much better of a photographer, give you more experience, gives you a different point of view. I think it's a fascinating thing. I think more people should do it. And I think they should do very careful research on who they are taking the workshop from. Is it because they're just popular on social media or is it because they have a real good reputation as an, as an educator? Which one is it? For sure. 
Look, just before we move away from workshops, I guess the other big negative thing that I hear is there's so many people, and I guess you just alluded to them then, you know, the people that are popular in social media that decide to start running workshops as a money-making, not I won't say scheme, but process to profit from photography rather than going out and shooting, you know, they run workshops instead. And that's created a bad stigma around these workshops. What are your thoughts on that? I blame the students that pay these teachers that are inexperienced and have no clue what they're doing. I completely blame the students. I don't blame the teacher. Look, if students are not going to do any research and they're just going to follow the clock and pay their hard-earned money without doing research, it's their fault. And the teacher's not, not to fault for trying to make money, even though she has no clue or he has no clue what the hell they're talking about. If people are willing to pay, because their only strength is that they're popular in social media, and their people are willing to pay, and they think that qualifies them to teach, I put that on the students. So, you know, I mean, these people are going to try to, you know, make money, pay their bills, you know, do whatever they need to do in photography. And if that means teaching workshops with no content and people are willing to pay for that, how can you blame the teacher? (laughs) I don't agree with it. I don't agree with that at all. But look, I have an economics degree, right? In economics, it's supply and demand. I mean, you don't blame the source. You blame the people that are paying for the source, even if the source is freaking empty. (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense. It does. It makes sense what you're saying. I'm looking at it from a scientific point of view, right? Like like a business point of view, that's the way it is. I tell people, look, I beg you to do research. That sometimes photographers that are qualified to teach and are amazing instructors are also popular in social media. You can have both. But I'm talking about teachers who have very little experience, their work is weak, they don't have a lot going on other than their social media popularity, you know, is that what you want to pay for? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's the student's decision. Yeah. You know, the way you describe this, it reminds me of a couple looking for a wedding photographer, you know, if they choose the the cheap wedding photographer because he's the cheapest and, you know, it's buyer beware, isn't it? It's buyer aware, that's right. I mean, you go choose a wedding photographer and you're like, well, this is cheap. This is great. I get to take a wedding photographer and I just save myself $5,000. And then when you end up with crap, you know, you can't blame the photographer. You're the one that chose them. Yeah, exactly. Roberto, let me change tactic. Let me take you back to the time when you, you quit the job. You've got 10 weddings or so booked, or you may have had more at that stage. And you're, you're like a sponge at this stage. You're looking to make your photography better. And I look at your work now and it's, you know, you're a freaking master. You're amazing. How did you get to where you are now? And I guess, is it just practice or did you learn or follow other photographers? How did you get as good as you are? So a combination of different things. The first and the most important one was a deep desire to not take shortcuts in photography. I did not want to take the shortcut route. I really wanted to learn things properly. So for example, my 24 to 70 millimeter lens, which is like the first lens I I purchased. I studied that lens quite a bit everything about it from 2.8 aperture to f16 or whatever the smallest aperture i wanted to know how the lens responded i was a sponge i was absorbing everything and i didn't want to take shortcuts from being a professional guitar player you learn practice regimen it's a very disciplined very calculated very deliberate practice regimen that only musicians really know how to do Being a classical musician, like a professional classical concert musician, requires a tremendous amount of discipline and dedication to practicing. And trust me, there is no photoshopping a classical guitar concert mistake in front of 200 people. 
you know, you cannot Photoshop it. You make a mistake and everyone hears you. So from my point of view and the way I was raised was to practice to the point where that mistake just won't happen because you're so trained. So where did you practice? Who were you photographing to practice? My family, my sister-in-laws, my wife, her sisters. So not at weddings? No, I would have a practice schedule that was a weekly practice schedule. The best practicing happens when you have a very deliberate goal you're trying to achieve, something very small. And you also have to set parameters and you also have to be able to make it like a repeatable process. And when you do that, when you know exactly what the goal is going to be, like, for example, you can say something like, I want to set up an off-camera flash setup from scratch and expose it well at when my camera's at f2.8. So then you time yourself. How long does it take you to pull out the remote, put it in your hot shoe, pull out the flash out of the bag, put it on the stand, turn it on, do that. And it takes you like two minutes. And then it takes you one minute. And then it takes you 30 seconds. And then it takes you 10 seconds. And then when you start practicing these things, all kinds of exercises like that. That was just one example. But all kinds of things like that. You start developing a... It, first of all, it becomes fun. It becomes kind of like you become very intuitive about it. When you pull out a flash to do off-camera flash, you can do that in 10 seconds. You're not fiddling around with buttons. All of that crazy amount of mistakes people make, you already made those mistakes during your practice time. I consider a wedding or a portrait shoot a performance, like a guitar performance. It shouldn't be a practice session. You shouldn't be practicing in front of your paying clients. That should be done throughout the week. And in Saturday on Sunday, when you're shooting paid jobs, I think your clients deserve a performance, not a practice session. When you say practice, you would literally set aside one hour or two hours and shoot with one lens or whatever your exercise is and just do that for that hour or two hours. It was only 30 minutes. All my practice sessions were only 30 minutes. Very rarely did I go over that. Would you actually schedule this time, 30 minutes, a 30-minute block to practice? Yeah, 30-minute block. And my practicing exercises was based on sometimes if I shot a wedding, I would come back and I would pull out all the photos that didn't work out and I put them in a folder and the folder was labeled, you know, it was like had a red label on it for my mistakes during that wedding. I also put another folder with a green label. And then from that red label, I would open up four different folders inside that folder and I would call them technical mistakes, artistic mistakes, like composition mistakes or location mistake. Like was it a location mistake? Is it location distracting and is it not, not helping me? Did I choose the wrong place? Or another folder was did I choose the wrong camera settings? It's like it was a technical error that made me miss the photograph. Another one could have been speed. Was I not fast enough and I missed the moment? Why did I miss the moment? Why was I not fast enough? What were my settings that I missed? You know, things like this. So I would put these folders and then I developed exercises based on each folder. I've done thousands and thousands of those exercises, Andrew. Like since I began my photography career, I have never missed a single week of practicing in 11 years. And I still practice today. So you still practice now? You still practice? I practice as religious as I did before. I practice all the time. What was the most recent practice you did? And you know, what were you practicing? The last one I did was with the Magnum modifiers. And Magnum modifiers are Prophoto, the beauty dish for Prophoto, and the Chimera collapsible beauty dish that they just came up with. And I wanted to basically see how the light feathered out from those three different modifiers. So 
if I was trying to shoot a fashion campaign, which is now, I wanted the shadow to appear much quicker. I just wanted to know exactly how that modifier was going to be, but can achieve that desired look. It's so funny when people say something like, well, if you have a beauty dish, a beauty dish is going to create this look. Well, that's, I hate to say this, it's bullshit, because if you practice those things, you realize that the beauty dish takes in all different characteristics depending on the distance to the subject. It's ridiculous. If you put a beauty dish a foot from your subject, that takes on one characteristic. If you put it two feet or eight feet or ten feet, it doesn't look like a beauty I don't understand why people say these things like, oh, the beauty dish has this look. It's like, well, yeah, only that look when it's three feet away from the subject, that's it. Yeah. And you're not gonna, like you said, you're not going to know unless you practice. I practice it. I practice the beauty dish at one foot, two feet, three feet, four feet, five feet, and you study the behavior of how the shadows behave. And then when you're doing the job, you know exactly what it is, and you know exactly what it's going to look like. It's actually quite fascinating. If people did that more, it would make photography a lot more enjoyable because you're no longer guessing. You're actually like in command. You are in the driver's seat of every decision you make. I think what you've just shared just now and the fact that you're at the level that you are and still practicing like you are is a total eye-opener. That's amazing. Yeah. Roberta, I've just got a couple more questions for you. One is, which photographers were you looking for to learn back when you were really that sponge, you know, really looking for inspiration? You know, one of my favorite photographers that I would copy all the time or try to was Parker Fister. Do you know who he is? No, can you say his name again, sorry? Parker Fister. Okay, no, I don't know him. Yeah, Parker Fister had a very interesting artistic style. And then for photojournalistic style, I would always look to a photographer in England. His name is Jeff Esco. I'm sure you know who he is. Yes. So you would look at modern photographers? Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at modern photographers. I wasn't looking at, you know, Helmut Newton or any of that or Adderall. And I wasn't looking at those people. I didn't even know who they were, to be honest with you. I was looking at the photographers that I was, you know, aware of because of WCPI and all that different stuff. There was uh, very interesting styles, you know, like Rocco and Cora and you know, the way he shot and the way he looks at things, the way he lights, it's just, to me, it was just freaking amazing. I mean, that's a real master, right? And so, yeah, I mean, you know, without shame, I studied them deeply and then I kind of copied them when I was just learning so I could actually grow, you know, develop my own style. Of course, now I don't, you know, copy anyone, but, you know, you still get inspired by people. Like recently, I got inspired by Johnson Wee, the photographer in Malaysia. Did you ever go through a period where you did go back and study the masters, you know, like Abandon and Newton and Bresson and those guys? I have all their books, you know. I've purchased, you know, those fashion books and canoes and all those coffee table books. I've copied them. I mean, I've bought them books. I've bought the books. I've read about them. I've gone to museums to, with their photography when I've read everything about it. It's been interesting. To be honest, it hasn't really... I don't know if, for me, has translated into something that I can use today. I appreciate the art, but it was hard for me to apply that. Uh, I know it sounds really cool to say, like, oh, you know, I look to Avedon for my style. I know it sounds awesome to say that, but it just doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
okay, so, you know, people throw in, people throw the same three names all the time, you know, it's just like, okay, what are you going to do tomorrow when you're shooting your wedding? I mean, I don't know, you know, it's tough. Like, for example, Helmut Newton, you know, he did those photos where he did four women dressed and then he did the silly pose, but the women were undressed. Okay, that's a cool idea. And they're like, okay, that's it. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, so you took your inspiration from more modern photographers that were, I guess, cutting edge and doing the type of things that you wanted to be shooting today or at the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. People that are under pressure, they have like, they have to do photos. They, you know, how do you harness that, that location's photographic potential? How do they do it so fast? I mean, if you look at these people like Cliff Mounter and these guys, uh, Fister, Susan Stripling, you see these people work or whatever, they just, it's just freaking insane how good they are. And especially the age, you know. And I just lost you then, Roberto. Sorry, you must be going through a bad area. I just lost you. Let me know. Is it better? Yeah, it's good. So you just mentioned Cliff Mountner and Susan Stripling. You said you watch these guys. They are just super fast. They're just on their game. Yeah, and also, you know, Marcus Bell from Australia. You know Marcus Bell very well, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, people like that, you know, you have all those guys that were really pushing the limits of the wedding photography, you know, Jerry and Gervant and Ryan Chambry and Rocco, you know, Marcus Bell. You have all these Australian guys that were just kicking butt and really revolutionizing wedding photography. Of course, you get inspired by that. And of course, I wanted to learn how they thought. What was their thought process? How did they pose? How did they light? How did they choose settings? And most importantly, how did they make it look so easy? And it looks so beautiful. I mean, so it was just a lot of cool people out there. I think those are the people that were more relevant to me and some of the old masters, even though I, I have nothing but respect for the old masters, of course. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned books there, and you said you've got these old masters' books on your shelves. You know, why did you even bother to write books? What was the inspiration behind that or the push behind creating your own books? That's a good question. Wow, I don't know why no one's actually asked me that. Through the practice sessions that I did, it was almost a natural evolution that if you put this together the way your thought process was when you were practicing, I would put together a book. And that book became my first book called Picture Perfect Practice, which is why I called it practice. Because it was kind of like what I did and how I looked at the locations and how I broke them down in order for me to be able to take good photos as fast as possible without sacrificing quality. And that book became a huge, huge success. And I wrote it basically from my pure heart, just like really trying to put together a great book that would help me and that would help others. So it kind of, the ball kind of started with that book. Mm -hmm. What was the next one? It was picture perfect posing and now lighting. Yeah, because again, the natural evolution, I was having a hell of a time with posing. Posing was always a struggle for me. And so I worked really hard for many years to develop a posing system. And then I developed my own system based on my own observations. And that system that I created was based on 15 points. And it had to do more with psychology of posing than telling people, here's how you pose women or here's how you pose men. It was more like, here's what happens if you bend the joint to this level. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what happens if you put the shoulder this way. Here's what it's going to look like to the viewer. 
you know, if the knee is the first thing the camera sees instead of the face. I did that by pure observation, by watching movies, looking at freaking thousands and tens of thousands of photos and finding patterns. And then that became my second system, which was a book, and the book was called Picture Perfect, Posing. And then the same process happened with lighting. I understand how lighting is taught. I understand about the light meter, and I understand about the lighting ratios, and I understand all that. But that never applied to me when I was in the middle of a wedding or a portrait session or a fashion shoot. It was almost like all of that gets forgotten. Like You don't think, oh, I need a 3-1 ratio right now. Let me get my light meter. Like, by the time you do that, you're already like, you know, it's like, it's like the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, everyone that's listening to this knows that photography you know, time is never on your side. Let's just face it. You never have enough time. So all these crazy things like, you know, the ratios and bringing a thousand modifiers for your flashes and all this stuff, it's just freaking crazy. Like you just don't have the time to be putting that and carry all that around. So I developed a system called circumstantial light elements or I call them CLEs. And then I developed how the light the natural light from the sun, how it gets influenced by the objects around your subject. So it can be influenced by the road, by cars, by the color of the cars, and how the light bounces on your subject based on the objects around that subject. And then if the light is weak on your subject, you know why. And if it's weak, you can apply helper light. And helper light is basically adding light to the scene by adding a reflector, a diffuser, or flashes. And then I created a whole new thing called my lighting benchmark which says in order to train yourself to become really good at lighting and becoming a master, try increasing the amount of light in the scene instead of changing the camera settings to meet any kind of lighting conditions. So for example, if you have crappy light, most people would shoot their, turn their ISO to ISO 3200 in order to make up for low light. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> yes, and that's okay when you're shooting photojournalism. But when you're shooting portraits or something that's more portrait-related, where you have more control, I wrote this entire system on how to increase the light in the scene so you can shoot that low, low ISO, something like 100 or 400. And then I did it in a way that would be very practical and something that you could actually do in the midst of being in a rush and being in a hurry. Because then the quality goes up. The quality of the photos goes up. So what you're talking about in here, I could use what you're teaching here at a wedding with, say, my speed lights. Yeah. I don't need to bring a pro photo flash system, battery packs, sock boxes. You can if you want to look really cool. <laughs> you can. <laughs> you know, but when you're in the midst of the pressures and the time constraints of any kind of job, not just weddings, any kind of job, it's very difficult to put that together. Of course, if you're shooting in a studio environment and you have all day to do a portrait for a fashion campaign or something, that's a different story. But I'm talking about most of us when we go out and we do shoots with people, like real jobs, you know, the jobs that pay us between 500 and 5000 or $10,000, you know, those kind of jobs where you go out and you do window light and you do outdoor light and you do, for example, people always run to open shade and they don't even know what quality of light is living in that open shade area. And most people don't even consider that. They just go into open shade and then they crank up the ISO and then they start taking pictures. And that's why our industry is really suffering because most people with an iPhone or a smartphone can duplicate the look of that, can duplicate that look with their own smartphones. 
But if you implement this entire thing that I'm talking about that I wrote in my book, Picture Perfect Lighting, you'll be, your photos increase in quality to the level that an iPhone or a smartphone could just not match. Right. Which is what you were saying earlier. We need to, as professional photographers, to be above that level to stay in business. Yeah. We need to start posing well and lighting well and composing well. And we need to be able to do all of those things faster than ever because now if people's patience are running out, if you're spending 30 minutes trying to set up 25 lights because you want to look really cool, you're going to lose your subjects. Your clients are just not going to put up with that. Okay, so what about the documentary photographer listening to this right now? They would just be laughing. They would say, none of this affects me. I can just shoot what I want. And he should laugh at this because... If you're a documentary photographer, then you don't care about all this stuff. If you're shooting photojournalism, then the whole point of photojournalism is to capture a moment that's happening in front of you, and that's the most important thing. Not the lighting, not the distracting elements. It's the story that you're capturing that's the key. So if that's the goal that you're doing, if you're shooting a war in Iraq or you're fighting ISIS and you're documenting that, you're not going to care about the lighting on the terrorist. You know? No, but what about the wedding documentary photographer? Do you think they're just taking a shortcut or the easy way out by calling themselves a documentary photographer and not learning all this stuff? You know, I respect all kinds of, of styles. Some people call themselves pure photojournalists, and that's fine. I think if you're a photojournalist, I wouldn't call it a shortcut. I just think it's a style that, you know, I think a lot of people call themselves that, but they still need to shoot portraits, you know, at a wedding. You know, the bride might still request some pictures of her and her husband or, or maybe some family pictures or whatever. It is at times like that, that having a little knowledge of lighting and posing might come in handy. I always recommend photographers that call themselves photojournalists. If you call yourself a photojournalist because that's what you like, that's the style you like, then props to you and awesome. But if you do that because you just you've never taken the time to really understand and study and practice posing and writing, well, then that's shame on you. Like, that's bad. You know, it's like, don't call yourself a photojournalist because you never really put the legitimate amount of time it takes to learn posing and lighting. Because you can't tell me, if you tell a photographer, how would you like to have knowledge of posing and lighting? And that way you can choose to use that knowledge or not. Who would say no to that? Like if I give you a pill that you swallow, and if you swallow the pill, you become an outstanding photographer, a master of posing, and a master at lighting. Would you not take that pill? In a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, you would take that pill, wouldn't you? All right. I mean. Of course, yeah. So if you tell the photojournalist, here's a pill that will also add to your amazing photojournalistic abilities, the ability to be a great, great at posing and also the ability to create beautiful and fast lighting with strobes and reflectors and diffusers. Would you not take that pill? I think they would. And if the people that say, no, I wouldn't, they're just being arrogant and it's just, they're just being stubborn. Like, why would you not want that knowledge? Yeah. I think that is the perfect place to finish this because that is a great point that you make there. Roberto, this has been an absolute pleasure for me and I know... (laughs) We've worked hard to make this happen. You're literally in the car driving to this workshop in Arizona. So I've got to say a massive thanks for your time. (laughs) Where is the best place for the listener to check out your work? Actually, right now I'm doing a lot of stuff on Periscope. My Periscope handle is Roberto Photo, just like my Twitter handle, which is at Roberto Photo. And then, of course, my website is just my name. So it's just RobertoValenzuela.com. And then if anybody's interested in what I'm doing teaching-wise, 
they can look it up at pictureperfectpractice.com, which is the title of my first book. So I just made that into a website called pictureperfectpractice.com. And there you can find out about my workshops that I'm teaching around the United States. I'm teaching one in London, in London, England, in coming up in September or October. And then, of course, my books, you can find them in any bookstore, a physical book, or you can buy it from Amazon. My Instagram is Roberto underscore photo. If people want to check out my, my funny pictures there. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it really has been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to add links for the listener in the show notes for this episode. I'll add links to all the things you just mentioned then, all your social media profiles, links to the books, and also to the photographers and the products that you mentioned throughout the interview. Mate, safe driving. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Australia. Have a great time in Arizona and a big shout out to Kim for driving safely while we're doing this interview. <laughs> hey, Andrew, can I just say thanks for working with me on this and appreciate you and the time you took to do this interview. And I hope your listeners and your audience, I hope they get a little bit of you know, information or they enjoyed the podcast at least a little bit. There's absolutely no way that they couldn't have enjoyed listening to your stories, mate. You're an amazing guy and a super talent. So thanks again. Thanks. Looking forward to meeting you. Take care. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com.